Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 37. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about the Bach motets, primarily BWV 225 through 231. These works, traditionally grouped together, were all composed in Leipzig, but differ as to function or musical style. They stand almost alone among Bach's works as substantial pieces for chorus alone, with no soloists. Whether they were originally performed with instrumental accompaniment has been for some time a matter of disagreement. Continuo parts do exist for at least one of the motets, but Bach is often quoted to the effect that instrumental doubling of vocal parts in this sort of work should be employed only when necessary. What is it that makes them motets? That designation has a long history dating back to the Middle Ages, where motets, sacred and a little later secular, were probably derived from adding additional words and melodies to already existing pieces of organum, early two-part counterpoint. But the evolution of the motet over time is subtle and detailed and well beyond the scope of this episode. For Bach, motets were choral works composed for special occasions, in at least two cases, and perhaps more a funeral. In other cases, they may have been created to embellish a memorial service or a more joyful celebratory event. It is those motets that we're going to investigate first. We're going to focus initially on Zinga Tam Herren ein neues Lied, Sing Unto the Lord a New Song, BWV 225, a work for eight voice double chorus which Bach scholar Malcolm Boyd suggests may have been composed for a celebration of King August's birthday in a ceremony honoring his visit to Leipzig after having recovered from a serious illness. Christoph Wolf, on the other hand, suggests that it may well have been composed as a teaching piece, a work that would introduce Bach's young singers to some of the elements and technical problems that they would encounter in the cantatas. Other occasions and circumstances have been suggested as well, but most scholars agree that it was composed in 1726 or 1727. It is, at any rate, a formidable work which combines different texts and styles with aplomb. The text, as usual, based on the translation of Francis Brown from the invaluable BachCantatas.com website, draws from Psalms 149 and 150. Sing to the Lord a new song. The congregation of the saints should praise him. Israel rejoices in the one who made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful about their king. They should praise his name in their dances. With drums and harps, they should play for him. Beginning in B-flat major and 3-4 time, the tone is jubilant from the beginning. In choir one, the basses hold out a pedal on the tonic note of B-flat, and the top three voices toss around short motives often based on one of Bach's favorite joy figures, the eighth note followed by two sixteenths, usually strung together in pairs, often ending with a longer note value. The soprano line, sung by what we'll refer to as soprano one, starts on D, the third of the tonic chord, and after initially ascending, soon settles into a series of suspensions with the lower voices that work down the scale all the time repeating the first word of the text. Sing, 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 sing,
I didn't even mention the activity of the second chorus because initially it plays very much a supporting role, with quarter note block chords filling in the harmonies on beats one and two of each measure. But as you may have noticed, chorus two becomes more ambitious starting at the end of measure four, at least the upper three parts do. Soprano twos, the soprano line in chorus number two, first echoes the suspension figures of the first chorus sopranos, joined a little later by tenor twos, and while alto twos introduce some even faster moving motives based on sixteenth notes. When we finally arrive at the words to the Lord in bars eight and nine, and chorus one pauses its activity, it appears for an instant that we may be modulating to E-flat major as we arrive at our first major melodic peak. But as you could hear at the tail end of my excerpt, E-flat major is only touched on briefly, and besides, we're not even really pausing. Chorus 2 decides to continue the argument, at least for another measure. Then the first chorus jumps back in, and the two alternate briefly until we hit a major juncture. The final word in the first line is finally introduced, lead or song, and simultaneously the two choruses exchange roles and motives as the opening text is repeated more or less complete, with multiple repetitions of zing it, but now beginning on F major, the dominant chord, and at least in the performance I'm using, given a much more rhythmically emphatic treatment as in the opening measures. Somewhat later, the key of F major is made to feel like the actual key center, but not for long. Eventually, we hear a modulation to E-flat major, more convincing than the first one, where chorus 2 drops out for a bit, and chorus 1 takes over, introducing the next part of the text, the congregation of the saints should praise him. Let's hear it from the tonicization of E-flat major I mentioned earlier, and the return of the opening section with the switching of roles between the two choruses to that point. As Chorus 1 takes over for an eight-measure stretch, declaiming the new text, the mood changes somewhat. The melodic ideas here are somewhat new. In fact, the first phrase of the soprano's line almost suggests a sense of yearning as it dangles a mild dissonance against the chord below it, repeated down a step in the next measure. Chorus 2 then returns with the same text, and while the motives are more rhythmically active, it also makes use of a gentle accented dissonance in the soprano line, repeating it sequentially.
As we continue on, introducing one part of the text after another, we encounter a marvelous complexity of counterpoint, often with motives tossed around between the parts. At times, when the choruses are singing together, chorus two may, for a while, make use of a simpler, more homophonic texture, but never for long. At other times, both choruses engage in breathtaking contrapuntal flights in sixteenth notes, sometimes heard in as many as four voices at once. There is too much going on here to try to document everything, but I'm going to focus on two other sections. The first comes right after the flowing passages with the gentle suspended dissonances that I just referred to, where the text changes to, Israel rejoices in the one who made him. Here the music is bolder, no gentle dissonance to soften the effect, and it is somewhat more homophonic. The middle voices in both choruses joining together in slower-moving note values, although sopranos and basses continue with more rhythmically active phrases, especially one oft-repeated phrase on the words, Israel rejoices, the sopranos moving in thirds with the basses and with overlapping echoes between the two choruses. Also of note in this section are the dramatic pauses that occur periodically when busy lines are reduced to quarter notes, often with rests separating them, sometimes split between the two choruses to create an unusual rhythmic effect. Here's a little of that passage. At the point where my excerpt concluded, we have confirmed our modulation to F major, and it is in that key where our next new important thematic idea is introduced, in the form of a fugue. The new text is, Let the children of Zion be joyful about their king, they should praise his name in their dances. Meanwhile, Chorus 2 has started up again with its Sing a New Song text. The sopranos from the first chorus juxtapose over chorus to a long and rather complex fugue theme based on the new text. After seven measures, the altos answer up a fifth, actually heard down a fourth, in typical fugal fashion, against a very active, continuing counter-subject in the sopranos, stringing together long melismas of sixteenth notes on the word dancing. At this point, chorus two has simplified its accompanying texture somewhat, and at no point is it as active as the fugue subject or the countersubject. After seven more measures have passed, the tenors provide another answer, also up a fifth. Seven measures after that, the basses enter with the subject an octave lower, this time joined by the basses of chorus two, against some new motives in the soprano, including some longer sustained tones. Then, after seven bars, the tenors return, both groups of tenors, chorus one and chorus two. But by this time, all of the basses are spinning out the long counter-subject flow of sixteenth notes, and that probably makes the greatest impact on the ear. Mm -hmm. 
it's hard to imagine a more dazzling fugal section. We've arrived in C minor at this point, and the last line of text introduced by the tenors. With drums and harps, they should play for him, giving the word pauken or drum some appropriately military-sounding, fanfare-like triadic motives, even as the altos continue their dancing motive, and the basses start up yet again on their Sing to the Lord a New Song idea. Here's a short excerpt showing the new Pauken motive. But Bach is far from finished at this point. In fact, he's not even finished with the fugue subject, which soon pops up again in the Sopranos with the Children of Zion text. But we're going to move on now to the next major section of the motet, which Bach designates as Aria and Chorale. This section alternates Bach's settings of the traditional chorale melody, now known best in English as Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow, or the Doxology, sung by Chorus 2, with commentary or amplification, so to speak, from Chorus 1. We have seen something comparable to this before in some of Bach's cantatas, a section of a chorale alternating with this sort of commentary, but that commentary has normally been given to a soloist, probably in recitative or arioso style. In this case, since it's provided by Chorus 1, the responses are in sometimes very elaborate four-part counterpoint. The new text drawn from the third verse of a chorale by Johann Grauman, also known as Poliander, translated as, Now praise my soul the Lord, is, As a father feels compassion for his young little child, so does the Lord for all of us, if we feel pure childlike awe. He knows how weak is our strength. God is aware that we are only dust, like grass before the rake, a flower, or falling leaf. The wind has only to blow it over, and it is there no more. And so man passes away, his end is near him. The text for the commentary sung by Chorus 1 is, God, in future take us to yourself, for without you nothing is accomplished in all our affairs. Therefore be yourself our protection and light. And if our hope does not deceive us, in future you will do this. Happy are those who firmly and fastly depend on you and your grace. Chorus 2 opens with a simple and straightforward setting of the first two bars of the chorale. Chorus 1 then offers a more contrapuntally active response led by the sopranos. A slightly more embellished version of the next two measures of the chorale follows from Chorus 2, and Chorus 1 then responds with a longer, more complex rejoinder, this time led by the basses, employing the same opening phrase and featuring some lovely suspensions in both the basses and sopranos. Here are the first ten measures. Thank you. 
The opening phrase, which you heard in both sopranos and basses from Chorus 1, has an important role to play as this section unfolds, although it is not the only phrase used multiple times to bring in the first chorus commentaries. Some of those commentaries are longer, up to eight measures in length as we proceed, although the excerpts from the chorale itself generally remain shorter, no more than four bars long. This section as a whole, especially coming after the highly energized fugal section that preceded it, has an almost magical sense of serenity about it. The final section of the motet, beginning in E-flat major, employs the two choruses in the sort of interaction we heard in the first section. The text, taken again from Psalm 150, is, Praise Him in His works, praise Him in His great glory. Let all that have breath praise the Lord. Alleluia. This section is, from the opening measures presented by Chorus 1, lively and rhythmically vigorous, with the inner voices providing the most active parts. Chorus 2 responds in kind, halfway through the third measure. Chorus 1 then returns with a variant of its original statement, beginning with the same melodic motive heard originally in sopranos and altos, now shared with tenors and basses. By measure 9, we have reached the key of B-flat major, and Chorus 2 responds to Chorus 1's varied restatement with one of its own in the new key, but four bars later, cadences in C minor. As we proceed, the two choruses alternate, sometimes in very rapid back-and-forth exchanges, employing many of the motives heard in the opening measures and dropping in at various key centers. It's all quite exciting, peaking with both choruses coming together to cadence on F major, with a dramatic reduction in texture and a shift to 3-8 time. At that point, the choruses now join together from here to the end of the motet. The basses lead us into an ambitious fugal section based on a busy eight-measure subject in B-flat major, mostly consisting of rapidly undulating series of sixteenth-note melismas on the words all and breath, and a lot of breath is necessary for such a passage, broken every three measures by three clearly articulated eighth notes. After eight measures, the tenors join in, while the basses continue on with a similar passage but one featuring more sustained notes. The altos come in on schedule a fifth higher, as do the sopranos eight bars later, with the resulting texture becoming ever busier. With everyone all in, we cadence on F major and encounter a new passage, based on many of the same motives now tossed back and forth. The basses sneak in with the subject again, but we eventually encounter a more clearly homophonic texture on the word Alleluia.
but the busy contrapuntal texture returns quickly. The subject is introduced again by the tenors, doubled in thirds by the altos, and we're soon on the move again tonally, sliding into G minor, C minor, and E flat major, among other keys, mostly in a free exchange of earlier motives between the parts, the entire fugue subject never being formally reintroduced in so close to the final measures. And we conclude with a mostly homophonic blaze up. Here is the conclusion of the section and the motet as a whole, a truly remarkable work. We're going to look next at BWV 230, Love at Den Herrn, Praise the Lord. The occasion for its initial performance is unknown, but it is clearly celebratory. Some have suggested that it may have been the opening chorus for a lost cantata. It does not make use of a chorale and is composed for a single chorus. It does include an independent figured bass line, so presumably was accompanied by continuo instruments perhaps organ and reinforcing bass instrument. The text, based on Psalm 117, is short. Praise the Lord, all the heathens, and celebrate him, all the peoples, for his grace and truth. Reign over us forever. Alleluia. The sopranos begin the work with an ascending, triadic, almost fanfare-like motive in quarter notes, followed by a pair of descending lines in eighth notes, anticipated in the continuo part. The altos enter with overlapping imitation at the fifth in the second measure. The tenors enter in measure five on the original pitch level and the basses a measure later at the fifth. The imitation completed, Bach spins out the original theme with the motives distributed to various voices, along with some new ideas involving more sustained tones and touching on new key centers along the way. Here is the opening section. The first part ends with a modulation to G major, the key of the dominant, and we hear the text, And celebrate him, all the peoples, which is introduced by a new two-measure theme in the sopranos, one starting on the fifth note of the scale and gradually undulating downward in the first part of the measure, only to ascend quickly in the second. This idea is also imitated in turn by altos, tenors, and basses. 
the first undulating descending phrase is soon developed into a rising sequence to very great effect. The original first theme with the original text returns back in C major one final time before we're introduced to our next contrasting section. The text is For His Grace and Truth, and it is presented in a slower-moving, chorale-like melody and, initially, a more homophonic texture, although it doesn't take long for the tenors and basses to introduce a busier but still stately idea in quarter notes at the words reign over us forever, while the upper voices present some long-held suspensions. We're quickly on the move tonally, and even experience a little modal ambiguity along the way. Just as we seem to settle into a new key, Bach maneuvers away from it, or at least clouds it with ambiguity, not exactly what one would expect from a musical depiction of the words grace and truth although the sequential repetition of passages representing reigning over us does seem to suggest a return to stability. And at a later point, we do attach ourselves firmly to D minor. Not surprisingly, the texture increases in complexity, and the more measured chorale-like melody yields to a much busier one, including progressively ascending flows of eighth notes in the soprano line. But eventually, we return to C major with an emphatic cadence, the meter changes to 3-4, and in most performances, the tempo quickens as the Alleluia section is introduced. Again, Bach enlivens the texture with imitation. The perky four-bar theme presented in the soprano, featuring a conspicuous octave leap in its second measure, is treated with overlapping imitation by altos, tenors, and basses, all in the first five bars. The initial imitation is complete by measure eight, but the first measure of the theme in particular continues to echo through the texture, first in the basses and then elsewhere. New ideas are introduced as well, of course, along with suspensions and some very effective sequences. 
Here is the final Alleluia section. It's a very joyful and attractive work, but now we're going to turn to a very different and perhaps even greater motet, BWV 227, Jesu Meiner Freund, Jesus My Joy, in 11 movements, including all six verses of Johann Frank's text for the hymn of the same name, and multiple variants of Johann Krueger's melody associated with it, alternating with text taken from the New Testament Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8. Although widely assumed to have been composed for a funeral, there is again some debate about the composition date for this work. Some Bach authorities have suggested 1723, while others have made the point that some of the techniques heard here seem to advanced for that date. Still, other scholars have speculated that the wide variety of treatments to which the chorale melody is subject may suggest that some of the variants had been composed earlier, perhaps even several years earlier. There is nevertheless widespread agreement that the motet is a unique achievement, and the symmetrical organization by which the eleven movements are arranged one of Bach's most extraordinary accomplishments. We'll begin our examination with the first movement. Frank's opening text is, Jesus my joy, my heart's delight, Jesus my treasure, Ah, how long must my heart be anxious and full of longing for you? Lamb of God, my bridegroom, beside you there is on earth nothing else that is dearer to me. Bach's setting of the chorale melody in E minor unfolds as is typical in two sections, the first of six measures, which are repeated, and the second of seven. Organized for the most part into two-measure phrases, the first section stays close to the tonic key, although it briefly tonicizes the relative major of G. The second section does the same, and also briefly tonicizes B major, the dominant as well, before returning home in the last two measures to end on a Picardy third. The texture is primarily homophonic, all voices moving in the same or similar rhythmic values, although Bach predictably adds some eighth note movement on weak beats in the lower voices.
For the next movement, Bach shifts to five voices, employing an additional second soprano part. The text for this movement, from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is, in translation, There is now no condemnation in them who are in Christ, and who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Bach's setting provides a dramatic touch almost immediately, breaking off the first phrase on the word nichts or no, and then repeating it softly on a chromatic chord, a secondary dominant which will direct us briefly to A minor, and then loudly again as he continues the phrase that will end a few measures later with a cadence on the dominant. The first eight bars then repeat, with the dynamic contrast this time going from piano to pianissimo. The section that follows, Who Walk Not According to the Flesh, But the Spirit, makes some reference to the earlier motives, but not with the dynamic level raised to forte, is more rhythmically assertive, with syncopated figures working their way through the voices, along with some faster-moving repeated note motives and strong descending lines. A variant of the first section then appears, again featuring the same strong dynamic contrast, finishing on piano, this time moving toward B minor. A new section then begins, forte, employing the same text, there is now no condemnation, based initially on a variant of the opening motive in the sopranos from measure one, an ascending leap of a fourth, followed by a descending step all in half notes. Overlapping with this is a strong new motive in quarter notes in the second sopranos, who quickly pass it down to the other voices and eventually back up to the first sopranos. We move toward A minor in the process before eventually heading back to E minor. When we cadence on the dominant, we hear close relatives of the asserted repeated note ideas heard earlier, first in the altos, soon after in the sopranos, and then later in the tenors and basses. The upper voices broaden into longer note values, just measures, before the end of the movement. Here's an excerpt from this new section, based initially on a variant of the opening motive to the conclusion of the movement with its Picardy third. Oh, my God. 
For the next movement, Bach sets the second verse of the chorale. Beneath your protection I am free from the tagging of all enemies. Let the devil sniff around. Let my enemy become incensed. Jesus stands by me. Even though thunder crashes and lightning blazes, even though sin and hell terrify, Jesus will protect me. This setting is similar to the first, another four-part setting, but it is by no means identical. The basses hold their first note into the third beat for the first measure in each phrase, creating some interesting suspensions in the process. And the alto is much more rhythmically active, even contributing a new syncopation in the first bar of the new section. Here is the first section, sung more robustly and even angrily on the repeat in this particular performance when the text refers to Satan's sniffing around and becoming incensed. But perhaps most interesting is, in the second section, Bach's treatment of the terrifying aspect of hell, which Bach illustrates with a full diminished seventh chord we did not expect at that point, although it resolves normally enough in the end. The next movement returns to Romans 8 for its text. For the law of the Spirit, which makes me living in Christ Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. The movement is scored for just three parts, sopranos 1 and 2 and altos. Its opening measures are calm, almost placid, with the soprano parts moving in equal rhythm, often in thirds and sixths, while the alto provides much of the rhythmic variety moving when the sopranos are sustaining, and vice versa. The mood changes somewhat when we encounter the text, has made me free from sin and death. Here the three parts are indeed freer, each going its own way rhythmically and in terms of melodic profile, and somewhat more agitated as well, with diminished seventh chords appearing with some regularity. A sense of order, or at least continuity, is re-established in the final measures, as the last references to the law of sin and death are rendered with the same ascending melodic phrases passed from the altos to sopranos 1 and 2 in turn as we come to a close on B minor.
The third verse of the chorale is presented next, now in three-four time and in five parts. The text is, I defy the ancient dragon. I defy the jaws of death. I defy the fear they cause. Rage, world, and leap upon me. I stand here and sing in the calm of certainty. God's power takes care of me. Earth and hell's abyss must fall silent, however much they roar. The melodic ideas make some reference to the original chorale melody. The dominating motive in this setting, heard in powerful octaves in the fourth measure, derives from measure three of the original chorale melody, and the somewhat less conspicuous descending line in bars two and three in this setting derives also from the chorale, although its highly distinctive rhythmic profile here would make that connection difficult to hear. It is by no means a straightforward traditional chorale-like setting, despite the fact that it is initially homophonic in texture. As you might expect given the text, it is rich with dramatic gestures, unexpected pauses, and across-the-bar ties abound, along with frequent and dramatic changes in texture and dynamics. After ten measures, the basses in particular differentiate themselves from the upper voices with sustained pedals on the one hand and rapid passages of sixteenth notes on the other. As we move from defiance and rage to arrive at the text in the calm of certainty, the mood obviously changes. The movement, although clearly in E minor, had actually begun with a secondary dominant or applied dominant chord, pushing us first toward A minor. Now, with this significant change in mood, we turn to A minor again. The melodic flow is more continuous in every voice, with soprano ones floating above the other voices in more sustained tones. And when the text repeats, the dynamic level is lowered to piano. But we don't remain in this relatively subdued mode for long. We return to E minor, and the dynamic level increases in preparation for the last line of text, God's power takes care of me. Here a new melodic idea is introduced, sung in thirds in sopranos 1 and 2, and echoed a measure later by tenors and basses. This idea is then repeated down a step, and we move toward G major. When we encounter the text, Earth and Hell's Abyss, the rhythmic patterns again become more incisive. But when the line, Must Fall Silent, is heard for the second time, the music quiets again. For the final part of the text, However much they roar, we return to forte and a more agitated texture with multiple dissonant suspensions and the basses striking a particularly ominous posture. But in the end, we cadence on E major, another Picardy third conclusion to show God's ultimate victory. 
We'll hear from the section starting with the text in the calm of certainty through to the end of the movement. The next movement, in common time and beginning in G major, draws its text from Romans 9. But you are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. And so God's Spirit dwells in you in a different way. But whoever does not have Christ's Spirit is not his. The first part of this, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, is used as the basis for an impressive fugue. The first subject, presented first in the tenors, begins with three repeated eighth notes on tonic, followed by three ascending steps up to C, the fourth note of the scale, which is tied across the bar. That C then moves down a step to a note which will be heard as the resolution of a suspension once the other voices are added, and then leaps up a fourth. At that point, the eighth notes are replaced by a series of undulating sixteenth notes, showing presumably the spirit's flight and which finish off the subject. The overlapping alto entrance comes in measure three up a fifth, followed soon by soprano ones and basses. Near the end of my excerpt, you heard the soprano twos finally making their entrance as the texture thins to the two soprano voices alone. A little later, a new fugal subject is introduced in the tenors, beginning with the ascending leap of a fourth, followed by a descending line, all in eighth notes, with a new text, and so God's Spirit dwells in you in a different way.
The basses come in with a varied imitation, and sopranos one and two follow suit almost immediately, always with a variant of the closing notes of the subject. But the first subject refuses to be abandoned, reasserting itself in the soprano one voice, even as the imitation of the second subject continues to work its way through the voices below it. Soon, the basses take up soprano one's cause, and we hear a flow of sixteenth notes sung in tenths between them, above and below suspensions in the middle voices. Elements of both subjects continue to compete until we come to a cadence on G major and a switch to adagio. We'll hear an excerpt beginning right before the introduction of the second fugal subject and extending to the beginning of the adagio section. The adagio section, but whoever does not have Christ's spirit is not his, slows the momentum considerably and is mostly homophonic in texture. But it is not without its expressive gestures. Its references to lacking God's spirit employ some almost painful leaps to dissonance. But overall, the point of the final adagio section is to confirm the traditional Lutheran beliefs with unambiguous confidence. In the next movement, number seven, we return to the chorale, now with the text from the fourth stanza. Away with all treasures, you are my delight, Jesus, my desire. 
away with all vain honors. I don't want to hear of you. Remain unknown to me. Suffering, distress, the cross, shame, and death, however much I have to suffer, will never separate me from Jesus. The original chorale melody is delivered intact by sopranos 1 and 2, while the lower voices contribute a highly agitated texture, consisting of often angular and sometimes syncopated 8th and 16th note figures, drawing only tangentially on the original chorale melody above them. Here is a brief excerpt. The next movement, beginning in C major, marked andante, and in 12-8 time, derives from Romans 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. As in movement 4, Bach makes use of a trio, but this time employing the lowest three voices, altos, tenors, and basses. The emphasis here is not so much being dead because of sin, although we do experience something of a darkening in the harmonic fabric when death is referenced in the first part of the piece, but rather being alive, even buoyantly so, because of righteousness, as much of the music displays an almost pastoral lilt to it, and the righteousness of the Spirit is provided with a number of exuberant melismas. Oh, 
The next stanza of the chorale, written for four voices and excluding the basses, bears the text, Good night, O earthly existence. What the world has to offer does not please me at all. Good night, you sins. Stay far away from here. Come no more to the light. Good night, arrogance and splendor. To everything about you, sinful existence, I bid good night. The musical treatment, beginning in A minor, following the dominant chord in that key with which the previous movement concluded, is quite free, leading to its frequent description as a fantasia. The movement is a subdued one for the most part, much of it deriving from the opening phrase, but increasing in rhythmic activity and independence as it continues, and showing glimmers of imitation between the voices from time to time. Here is an excerpt. The second-to-last movement draws from Romans 8 for the final time. Now the Spirit that has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The very same Spirit that has raised Jesus from the dead gives life to your mortal bodies, so that His Spirit may dwell in you. This movement is virtually identical to the second movement of the motet for the first several measures, including the dramatic pauses in the opening measures. But it goes its own way after that, moving on quickly, albeit temporarily, to G major, although keeping, for the most part, to the same tonal centers thereafter. But the flow here is more continuous, leaving out the dynamic changes heard in the earlier movement as well as the obvious fluctuations in continuity. The tone overall is somber enough, but not without a certain air of militancy. It ends, as did the second movement, with a Picardy third on an E major chord, after a melismatic flourish on the word Geist or Spirit.
The final movement employs the last stanza of the chorale text. Vanish spirits of gloom, for my joyful master Jesus enters in. For those who love God, even their grief must become pure delight. Here I may have scorn and derision, but even in the midst of suffering, you remain, Jesus, my joy. The musical setting is identical to that of the first stanza. We've now heard three rather different works, the third being the most distinctive and complex of any of Bach's motets. The remaining motets are also more than worthy of our attention, but we're out of time for this episode, and we're going to close here. For our next episode, we'll look at two very important works for keyboard, the Italian Concerto, BWV 971, and the Fantasy in C Minor, BWV 906.